started a program for people 19 to 30 year old, a three-year program where they, each person has two mentors that call them once a month, and, and we get together once a year. And I designed a program that I thought we would all want if we were asked what we might want. You know, can you imagine two people calling you once a month to check in? And developing a condo with this group of people once a year. Um, I sort of see it as a Maidana for the next generation, um, an attempt to offer offer something in, in these public times. And um, my family uh, lives quite near where somebody offered to hold this retreat. So someone, one of the mentee's grandparents offered their place in the vineyard for this retreat, and there were 45 of us, including the mentors and the mentees, the 30 mentees. And it um, required a tremendous amount of energy on my part. It was like I was dorm mom. I was sharing a bathroom with 10 guys. But, you know, it was like, it was really like I was back in my early 20s, but I was teaching and giving interviews and setting the place up. And, um, but in the meantime, there was a very important family reunion happening um, right across the, you know, on a ferry ride across the um, ocean. And my family has never connected with what I do. That's an understatement. Um, <laughs> and they don't tend to call me and arrange family reunions with my schedule. It's sort of like they get hurt if I don't show up, but they don't ask me what would work for me. And, you know, I felt the strange, interesting karma of me being over in the vineyard for 10 days, them having a reunion right, you know, like a 20-minute ferry ride away in the middle of the retreat. Um, so I decided to go, um, but I really uh, made it in my head that I'd only go for a little bit of time, and I was going to make it back by the last ferry. Uh, and I knew it would be quite a... My family sort of a violent, drunken, riotous type of group, you know, so I knew it wouldn't exactly be a going with the flow kind of situation. So, I, uh, you know, I, I made sure I thought everything was going to be okay when I left, and I kind of got to the ferry just in time, got over there, and um, it was you know, a little bit of a drive to find it, and then I found where they were, uh, and my family does not understand also that I could show up for one or two hours and just leave. I mean, that's, that was also very strange. I hadn't seen them for months, as usual. And the little kids, like my grandkids and the great-great-kids, <laughs> the great-grandkids. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of uh, children that I love a lot. and uh, So I, I went in there knowing that I was going to be really firm. I had to make the last ferry. Um, my great-niece, who I'm very close to, had a fit. Like a total fit when I was about to leave. Dance with me. Just one more dance. Just one. She's begging me. So I was like, okay, one more dance. And that put me, you know how you kind of cut it a little bit too much? <laughs> like it was 10 minutes over what I had promised myself I'd do to myself. And there was just, you know, there was only one last ferry, and it was very critical that I get back to this retreat. So. Uh, this was Memorial Day weekend, Weekend, by the way, this part of the retreat. And I didn't figure in traffic, but I also didn't figure in this drunk driver in front of me. Like, it was late at night, and it, it, 
So I'm driving behind this drunk driver, and I'm just, you know how you start losing it? You know, you know, and I'm like, ah! <laughs> you know, and that whole feeling of the world is against you, right? And I'm sort of hitting the steering wheel, and I gotta make it, and how could this person be driving like this? You know, just everything started to turn into an obstacle for me instead of, you know, uh, a present. <laughs> a gift. Uh, and I had just written an article on patience for a Buddhist person. <laughs> and I kept having to go, okay, yeah, uh, yeah, okay. Patience is when we're in a, you know, we just settle back into timelessness. And impatience is when we get caught in time. And I'm like, I'm really <laughs> And then I settle back and. You know, and then I, I took the wrong turn. I mean, it was just endless. And I, I got up this piece of highway the wrong way. You know, I was going the wrong way, and I turned around, and then I got lost. I couldn't find where you park the car. To, you know, you have to park the car to take a bus. It's so crowded at that time of year, you have to take a bus. And the parking lots are usually kind of crowded, but I didn't expect what was coming. You know, so I stopped at this little um, gas station got directions, and I was kind of like nuts by this point. I'm like driving fast and kind of swirling around corners, and I get to the place, the parking lot. This is a huge parking lot, um, and this person sort of lets me in. And I see a bus full of people, but I didn't quite pay attention to that, because I'm re just really trying to focus. And I get up to this man, and I said, can I make the last ferry? And he said, absolutely not. You know, it, it's Massachusetts local, you know, just kind of. I don't know if anybody knows these types, but they're sort of my family. You know, they just, they just, he said, there's no way you're going to make it. That's what he said. And I'm like, okay, just don't pay attention. <laughs> and then he said, well, there's one parking place way down at the end. And it's, it's like 10 o'clock at night. And I, I go way down to the end of this thing. And I, by the way, I have this big truck that somebody had lent us to bring the food over to the vineyard. So I had this big truck to park and this teeny little space, kind of trying to hurry. And I'm not that good at this stuff. It was sort of like a bank, like a hillside, really narrow. And it was just, I just decided I'd better give up. You know, this was just too painful and I wasn't going to make it. And then this old man came along in a golf cart. Like it was sort of surreal, you know, totally <laughs> surreal. And he, he said, do you need help? And I'm like, can you park my truck? <laughs> I said, it's not legal. I can't park your truck, but I'll help you. So it was just, just cut it this way, cut it this way, cut your steering wheel this way. It took so long. And then he offered to give me a ride. He said it was dangerous there not to walk up by myself. And he offered me a ride on the golf cart. So we're driving along in this <laughs> golf cart. <laughs> I'm convinced that I'm not going to make it. You know, it's really late. The ferry had already supposedly left from the dock. And it took 10 minutes to get up to where the bus was. So I, he put, you know, I get on the bus, and everybody's furious at me. Just, I mean, if, if, it was just like the energy in that bus was just like, we hate you. <laughs> we hate you. So apparently, they had all been not only waiting for me, but none of them had been allowed to park in that parking lot. <laughs> and they had all come into that parking lot an hour or two earlier, and it was full. And they were asked to drive 
miles and miles away. And another bus had been taken them to there. And I was sitting there and I realized that if I had, if my, if my great niece hadn't asked me to dance, and then if I hadn't been behind the drunk driver, I wouldn't have gotten the parking spot. I was the only one who got a parking spot. And it was just like the whole sense of nothing going my way. You know that feeling? It's completely shifted to everything had made it so that I made that fuss. And it was so interesting how um, it was one of those experiences where it was so clear, like that it was so clear that for so many hours it looked like nothing was, was going to work out. And then to see that everything had gone into place so that it did work out. Um, I think that a lot of life is like that. And it's so hard for us to see it. It's like there's that great Native American, it's Ojibwa tribe, um, but it's anonymous that I think a lot of you would have heard it. Sometimes um, I go about pitying myself when all the wild great winds are carrying me across the sky. Mm -hmm. you know, and, and I think that that, that place of um, what I've been really exploring in my life is to see how I, I stay connected with my experience and how I stay with it and stay with it. And then those moments when I start disconnecting and just how interesting those moments are that in, in learning to value them, learning to value when I panic and when I get impatient and learning to value all the painful places rather than just valuing when I'm trusting. Because if we value just when we're trusting, then we're rejecting a lot of our experience. And that kind of brings me back to what Gavin was saying, where I feel like when I first, when I first started meditating in 1975, I started to see that probably 98 to 99% of my experience wasn't acceptable. You know, you know how, you know, boredom isn't, you know, just like that feeling like, eh. You know, it's not like it's bad, but it's just not good enough. It's just like there's that element of dissatisfaction. And um, I hadn't remembered a lot of, uh, I knew my childhood was pretty crazy and traumatic, but I, I, I had a lot of years of meditation before a lot of the real trauma, actually the memory surfaced. And um, I, I was so shocked when I started to see that it was a lot of the ordinary moments of my life that I was rejecting. And that it, it was, it, in some ways, on longer retreats, I would see that I preferred intensity. I would actually prefer a more intense pain than something neutral. You know, and that, that neutrality was actually the most challenging experience that I have had to face. Um, so that some of the meditation masters will say that boredom is close to enlightenment. You know, that we're close, we're closest to that experience when we're bored. And it, I mean, isn't that interesting that, you know, that, that that neutrality is so close to that ability to just accept things as they are, but we're so afraid of it, you know. So, of course, all of us are different. We each have really different 
backgrounds, but we can just be assured that each of you told us your story. We all have a lot of suffering. No matter, no matter what, um, whether we were protected, lit or not as protected, but it's just the human world is hard. And even if we were a bit more protected, then you know you still have to deal with all the suffering. We're not separate, you know. So that you know, if there's war, if there's oppression, if there's any suffering in your neighborhood, in your schools, you know, in your town, state, it's just, um, it's really a part of life. And I, I think that I can actually articulate for myself now that it took time, but to be able to see that you can value things, to, to really see that it's not, you know, my condition is so much that pain is not acceptable, that we don't talk about it, that there was so much denial. You know, my mother died when I was 13 and no one even mentioned it. No, I mean, I can go in, I mean, it's hilarious. There were whiskey bottles in every drawer in my house and no one mentioned that there were any drinking problems, you know. There are extreme, there are extremes, but if you look at any family system, if you just took the expression indifference, just, just what we what we learn not to pay attention to, to, to just make peace, you know, to think that everything's okay, that we pretend. I, I call it, you know, I've joked with Gavin over the years that there are a lot of people in the spiritual world who look like they're okay, but it's it's uh, pretend economy. And they kind of drive me crazy, you know, the people that kind of look all calm. But they're not connected. And you can feel it. You can feel that it's not embodied. You can feel that it's not connected. Um, This is great fun. I like it. Okay, I I forgot to pause. We had an agreement we were going to pause. Pause. about this body of suffering where, you know, if each of us had to tell our stories, there would be suffering, even though the circumstances were different, but it's almost like, um, you know, it's just it's choosing between life, but there's suffering, and so it's like, for so many people, particularly in the, you know, the way we bring awareness, circumstances, there's this corridor where the suffering goes up around. Now, when you think it's too clear of how it was for you, then the suffering was like, it felt like, you know, I spoke earlier about that annihilation, and the fear was so great, it was so long, you know, I could not take another molecule, and yet, you know, here we are. Thank <laughs> you.
was awakening and loving me. That feels good. This does not feel bad. It feels wonderful. Any time you feel like you're open to something, that is a painful pleasure. And, and we, we're talking about reality and intangible because there's usually some of the resistance to pain that that's often um, the places that can really succeed in a way that the overwhelming places that we reject and it helps us to open up. Annihilation, to start sort of like this opposite process, which is aversion or irritation of fear is pulling away from what comes from So if you think of the mind and heart, it's going like this. Yeah, when we're really upset, we're like this. And then when when annihilation happens, we disappear to see what So that's the one And some of us here would know that experience very well. The beginning of it is this sensation, but then you really have to disappear and survive. And that doesn't feel good. This feels good. And it's what we're going to So we yearn to this. And we uh, don't want to go through that again. Usually, if we're afraid of it, we've already experienced it. So that's kind of, um, I don't know if that's a helpful description, but I think it's really important to know what so when Gavin's bringing up um, the question, well, how do you go through annihilation? Um, my sense is that one learns to regulate how often one does this. Because the more you open to what is good and beautiful, it'll make space for opening to the painting. In my experience, that the more I open in this way, that the more the annihilation is working. But this doesn't always happen exactly like that for people to feel it. Usually, if you've had a pretty traumatic history, it does. Um, and, um, <laughs> you know, it took me years to even be, to be able to articulate this process, never mind say how you go through it. But I think that, generally speaking, when annihilation is really strong, you would say that, um, this is interesting, I've been really, I used to say that um, the adult wasn't present and only the child was left. Um, I don't believe that anymore. So, um, I would say that what annihilation is, is it's like this complete split between an, a, a more adult consciousness and a child consciousness. And when you talk about abandonment, that's when there's just this extreme abandonment of the, of the body-mind itself. So it, it's like an extreme split. And, you know, I think that what I've learned is loving-kindness is, is talk about it with fear, but with annihilation, you just have to kind of back off and that back off with another description. Um, usually if I'm on retreat or not on retreat, uh, it's time to take baths, take a hot bath, have a cup of tea, write about it. It's like anything that you can do to start bringing back the adult and child back together. 
and you just wait until they come back together again. That's my experience. Yeah. Um, One of the things that you taught me, you know, I don't know if it's uh, as a man, although we had a retreat some time ago on the sacred masculine and the sacred feminine, and we remember we asked for those of you who are here, uh, how many of the people here are more comfortable with the masculine, the more aggressive, the more, you know, if something comes up you want to go for it, rather than the more receptive, the more embracing. Um, and most of the women on that retreat were actually more comfortable with the masculine. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was certainly my impulse when the stuff started coming that I just wanted to go into the heart of it. I wanted to, to you know, um, you know, just like a kamikaze pilot. And and w one of the great blessings of working with Michelle over the years was she taught me the blessing when things arise in the meditation that actually it's an expression not only of loving kindness but of wisdom to back off and to give it space. And sometimes it's almost like I would go forward and touch it and then, you know, I go for a walk in the woods and lie in the trees and let the ground hold me and then there would be a sense of renewal, a sense of, of coming home and then I'd go back and then just touch it again and that what wasn't required was a 24-7 involvement with, with all of this really difficult material. And so, um, what I offer in this is that, you know, um, the impulse, you know, like when Susie was talking this morning about this sincerity and this intention, so often there's this notion that if we're really sincere, if we're good meditators, then we should be able to grapple with like the fire, with the difficult stuff and hang in there. And I think that um, there's a kind of violence in that that the capacity to differentiate between those seasons for proximity, which might be a sitting, it might be a day, or a week, uh, and a season for, for pulling back, for renewal, for, you, you know, chocolate. <laughs> for a movie, you know? And then, and then you know, come, I, I was talking to Sean, don't anybody tell anybody this. But uh, I'm going to go on a retreat um, in the fall, and Michelle is going to be teaching nearby. And uh, we were just, you know, chatting and fooling around, and and you know, it just felt like um, she reminded me that you know how important it is to to. Um, go into a situation like that with the permission to not expect of myself some sort of 24-7 um, single-mindedness in what I'm going to be doing there. That in those times there's such an important place for laying down a blanket in the woods and just lying there and listening to the rustling of the leaves and letting you know the autumn leaves fall down and maybe even having days when I don't even meditate, it's just a question of being present in the most spacious and loving way. So while, you know, we offer instructions, they're all pointing towards a flowering, I mean, if you look at these flowers in front of us, the princesses and the fireworks and all the others, 
that we, you know, we each like flower buds opening into our greatest loveliness like those over there. And we each get a flower in our own beautiful, unique way. And so the teachings point to a place for a, a cultivation of a soil in which we are going to flower in our own perfect way, in our own perfect time. And it's not about a cookie cutter of little Michelle's or little Gavin's. Uh, that, you know, we, we each are going to flower, hopefully, in our own uh, beautiful way and in our, our own timing. And so hopefully what we do here this weekend and, and you know, the teachings, whatever they are, wherever we receive them, that they are supporting and mentoring us onto that landscape where uh, we flower with uh, an integrity to, uh, to what is essential. <laughs> One of the things that I find in, in this process of opening and opening and opening and the uh, onion, that metaphor of the onion, the layers peeling, um, are the things that I feel like I have the most resistance to when there is that opening. They're like pieces of myself that have been lost and that I, it's like getting pieces of yourself back. So it's sort of ironic. It's like over and over so ironic that the very things that I've resisted the most are actually parts of myself that I need the most. Um, so for example, with fear, um, it's like when I finally can just let myself fall into it. It's almost like you have to let yourself just fall into it like you fall into a puddle. Um, when you fall into it, it's like, wow, this is great. I finally have this connection to this part of myself that I split off from years ago. And it's just so interesting. It's just like it, it becomes a blessing rather than this thing that's so horrible. Um, over and over, that's what my experience is. And yet you can't rush it. You can't, you cannot force the petals open. And that's what, that's this really important part that I think that I learned really early in 79. Um, I had a teacher named Deepama from India that was extraordinary. She was a householder, incredibly um, awake, loving being. Um, and for me, as she was a woman and a householder, had a child, and that was really important for me because I hadn't seen any any um, women teachers up until that point of my life. Um, and she told me that I had to sit for seven days after I took care of her for two months. She came from India. I took care of her, and then I was supposed to go back up to northern Maine where I was homesteading. And I had promised, I had all these promises to keep, and she just insisted. She just said, you have to sit for seven days. And I'm like, seven? You know, <laughs> it's like, and she's like, make sure it's seven days. And in the afternoon of the seventh day, my back went out in a way that was just beyond belief. I mean, it was just like, took years. It took years of working. I mean, it's 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 still unstable. I mean, it was just sort of this twang. <laughs> and I would say that that 
experience and, and what followed from that taught me more about freedom than anything mm-hmm. in my life. And so whenever my back hurts, if I have the idea that it should go away, then that's not freedom. But if I have, you know, freedom is not about getting rid of anything. It's about how we're relating to it when it appears. Mm-hmm. And that's like a litmus test for me. You know, the back pain was nothing compared to some of the emotional pain. But whatever it is, it's like this process purifies our motivation. And this is what's hard to remember. It's like it's all about purifying motivation. So if the motivation is to manipulate and control and get rid of, that's a separate self. Aversion and attachment is a, it is our temporary moments of a separate self deciding it wants the world to be this way. Yeah. They're just temporary moments, but those, those moments when we're separate, when we're saying that um, we want life to be different than what it is. And freedom is seeing that we don't have to be limited by our desire for life to be different than it is. It doesn't mean that the desire won't come up, but we're not limited by it. That's freedom. So of course, if your back hurts or if you have chronic pain or whatever, you know, suffering, of course it's natural to not want that to be there. That's not the question. But the question is, can you open to how it really is? accept it, not take it personally. This doesn't mean that we become a doormat. You know, it's not about passivity. It's about really working with how things are. Being in a, it's being in harmony and alignment with the truth of things. So that's that was the beginning of me seeing that even though having my back go out was quite painful, um, it was the beginning of actually where my body was holding emotion. It came out through my body first. It took years before the emotion started to surface. That's how it went for me. So I'd like to invite you just for a moment to just hold, receive the feeling of the room now. Here and then out of this receiving and resting, if there is any response to what is being said, this is an opportunity to speak from right now, right here. Yet I'm, I'm able to dismiss them or to let go of them. 
because I feel it's, uh, I can see a, a desire to control issues. And um, so I, I, I feel personally a kind of conflict type, wanting to change the world. Mm -hmm. And not really to accept what it is. I just wonder how, how much of that you have to let go of in order to be for instance, the shows offer a mentee. How much did that take for you to be able to do that? I think this is all connected to the arousing of compassion. It's easier to have compassion for oneself than for because act on compassion. Not necessarily. It depends on the person. I'm sort of the opposite. <laughs> it depends on the, people tend to go either way. We don't tend to be born balanced with it. Yeah. Talk about bodies. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um. You know, after the 9-11 happened, uh, we had a retreat, coincidentally, the, the weekend after at the Valley. A lot of people, about 60 or 70 people there. And it was a really difficult time. You know, I think the number of people was indicative of people flailing around for some way of positioning their hearts, their minds, their, their place in the world in relationship to what had happened. And blessedly, about two days, really it was about two days before, I came upon this poem by uh, Tagore, the great Indian activist and um, poet and uh, thinker. And just find it here. You know, for those of us who do this, a good poem and a good quote is like priceless. And we don't share them always. But he said, and this was during the, sec uh, the First World War, looking out at the battlefields of Europe and all those millions of people who were dying. And he said, uh, and he got a Nobel Prize in 1913 with him He said, all the black evils in the world have overflowed their banks. He said, yet, oarsmen, take your places with the blessing of sorrow in your souls. Whom do you blame, brothers and sisters? Bow your heads down. The sin has been yours and ours. The heat growing in the heart of God for ages, the cowardness of the weak, the arrogance of the strong, the greed of fat prosperity, the rancor of the wrong, pride of race, and insult to man, has burst God's peace, raging into storm. And this was such a useful document in that retreat, because what we ended up trying to do was to see if there was a thought capacity in all of us to accept what had happened at 9-11. Not to condone it, 
because this is where we as a collective, as a species, as human beings, have gotten to. But we as a species have now reached the time in the evolution of our sojourn on this planet that we can commandeer aircraft and fly them into the and kill thousands of thousands of And it was all about and we didn't know what, what we could do about it. But it felt like if, if we inclined towards a willingness or an intention, you know, your earlier question, a willingness to accept this, to accept that this is where we are right now, out of that willingness is birthed a landscape from which probably the most trustworthy what happened is what originally for us humanity and for the human species. We don't like it, push it away. But almost immediately, collectively, the species was blamed. Look for enemies, bark, attack, get rid of it. It depends that we could actually do that. So, you know, to take a broad picture, a broad view well, the fighting we want you to get rid of is um, the end of the situation. So we started off here with Ashan Sulak and how does this relate? For our experience capacity to bring ourselves to whatever the particular configuration of suffering is that each of us experience, then blesses us with the capacity to be in the world uh, in a way that is less reactive and with greater capacity of heart and mind just the way they are, which is what Sulak said that is that we have to have the heart and mind of the world in order to acknowledge what is
very curious. You know, I found it curious and I went to I saw, you know, where you're at that time. I wasn't always a total clue. I feel like that was okay. But I think that the way you have to um, go along in the world and be ready to find the security company to do that. So I think that that's not necessarily difficult. But I think that in meditation practice, I have to see a kind of watercolor in meditation to come back.
and I'm not saying for me, you know, so, so maybe it's like Sunday is a verb and not a noun. That's pretty good, eh? That's kind of snappy. <laughs> I'll get two for that one. <laughs> it's uh, Kahena Beach in Puna. I'm not what they call a Puna And you earn your swim because you have to hike down the road, of course. And it's a uh, victory at sea every time you go into the ocean. It's, a, it's not as bad as food, huh? <laughs> no. And actually, I've, last night when I went to bed, my school was been, and I realized they are pretty good. Oh yeah, 20 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. The water's 
By the time it cools off, it would be time to get done. <laughs> I wanted to um, just clarify that there are really different ways that the um, spiritual journey unfolds for us. And there's a, um, there are lines from some of the Buddhist texts that give a kind of humorous example of this where it's said that there are people who move quickly with ease, move quickly with a lot of suffering. There's four. <laughs> Uh, move slowly with ease and slowly with a lot of suffering. <laughs> you know, so. <laughs> uh, um, because of the discussion this afternoon, I think it's just important to remember that there are people who don't have to go through these kind of intense dark nights of the soul as much as others. It's, a, it's more of a karmic thing. And just so that people who just, you know, just didn't want to have people get kind of assuming that everybody does that. <laughs> I don't know if you have any questions about that, but I think it's important to just know that um, we do unfold differently. And you never know <laughs> how that's going to go. <laughs> Quickly with ease. <laughs> I think that karma does change. Yeah. It can go the other way too. <laughs> yeah. I do think it I do think it changes, yeah. And just on a kind of more generalized note like that, I had a student who did a three-month retreat, and for three months he struggled with restlessness. And I don't know if you know restlessness very well, but when it's intense, it's just like you want to run out of the meditation hall screaming. It's just like it's a lot of energy, and you can't, you hardly have any concentration, and you just need a really big pasture. You know, you just need a lot of walks, and it's hard and I'd never seen anybody do this. So it wasn't like they were he was going through a lot of memories or, you know, trauma stuff. It was three months of just good old restlessness. And then a couple of years later he came back. It was gone. You know, so you know, that's just you just it's just really interesting how unique that is. And it was so surprising to me that it could last for three months. <laughs> you know. And then it was he hung in with it. Yeah. So who knows? You know. I mean, I think that's just that's just the level. Sometimes, sometimes for some people, the really hard thing is sleepiness, and there isn't a whole lot of other stuff but sleepiness. But that can be tough, you know. So it's just to not try to uh, second guess your path. <laughs> 
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.